Lost in Transaction, the podcast for the economically curious. We journey beneath the surface of the world you thought you knew, delving deep into the intriguing depths of finance and markets. Join us as we navigate the paradoxes and hidden mechanics beneath conventional wisdom, uncovering unexpected truths that shape our lives. This isn't about reinforcing what we think we know. It's about opening our minds to new perspectives. Welcome to Lost in Transaction. Welcome to Lost in Transaction. I'm your host, Zachary Grave. Today, I have Lionel Page. He's a professor of economics at the University of Queensland in Australia. He's the director of the Behavioral and Economic Science Cluster, and he's recently written a book called Optimally Irrational, The Good Reasons We Behave the Way We Do. Lionel, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So maybe we could just start there. You know, I'd like to know a little bit more about you uh, and, and obviously the behavioral and economic science cluster, what it is that you do over there. Right. So I'm, a, I'm an economist. I'm a behavioral economist. So we work at the intersection of economics, uh, looking at you know, economic decisions, as you may think about them, and psychology. Uh, so it's, it's an area which has become very popular over the recent years. Uh, so yeah, we do that. We have a big group here, uh, at the University of Queensland and, and we work with neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, uh, uh, to try to study how people make decisions from, you know, very simple, but, but common situations where you have to choose between two kinds of products and you have to acquire information. How does your brain decides when you have enough information to stop and make a decision? And we use quantitative models, uh, experiments to investigate these kind of situations. So I read your book, uh, Optimally Irrational, um, and we'll get into that as we go along here. I thought it was a great book, by the way. I really enjoyed it. Thank you it. very much. So I was thinking we'd set the stage uh, similar to the way the book goes. You know, you start off talking about homo economicus and some of the early uh, behavioral science models. You want to dive in there and set the stage? Yeah, sure. I think a natural way to present what behavioral economics is, is to explain how it came up to, to be, you know, why did it appear? Why did it evolve? Uh, and it really kind of was born as a reaction against the way economics was done in the past. So if you, you know, go back chronologically and you, we had a time machine and we come back in the eighties, how do economists think about uh, the world? They would be uh, having a model uh, and models kind of uh, a set of, um, assumptions, mathematical assumptions, which you can make predictions uh, about how people behave. And the, the kind of person that they were, economists were talking about doesn't look really like you and me. So economists were assuming that uh, the decision maker, as we would call this person, is rational. And by rational would mean that this person knows what he or she wants. Uh, what he or she wants is consistent. So you don't want things which are kind of conflicting. Uh, you know, you don't want to go to, uh, uh, to go to the gym and at the end of the year, you realize you have not gone to the gym, right? That's, that's not part of the, of the model. Um, and then this person is very good at mathematics. So, um, you know, this person doesn't have problem to fill, uh, his or her tax income or to uh, invest on in the stock market and, and schedule like the, the flow of return over time, et cetera. This kind of thing is perfectly fine. And also this person is very self-centered. So it's not like this person is a bad person. You know, he's not, this person is not spiteful, is not jealous, but this person just doesn't care about other people. So this person is focused on, you know, his or her material well-being, having a raising income, you know, working to get promoted and this kind of stuff. So that was a model. And I, in the book, I explained how, you know, 
a, a way, a kind of intuitive way of thinking about this person is to think about the, the series Star Trek. So it's not a real human. It's more like a, a Spock, like a Vulcan. You know, uh, somebody who is not a bad person, but somebody who is very cool, very rational, very good at at making at mathematics, and doesn't make mistakes. And, and so you had a psychologist who you know, were like maybe in the next building in universities and who study real humans. Like for years, they had been like you know looking at economists, uh, <laughs> analyzing and, and making the theories about humans. They're like, that's not you know. That's not the way people behave. And so they, 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 they really engage. Part of psychologists engage with economists with experiments and studies to try to uh, studies whether people, you know, uh, respect these assumptions. And obviously we don't. And, and so behavioral economics was born from this dialogue and these criticisms which came from psychologists and eventually some economists, behavioral economists, uh, took took these uh, criticism, you know, at heart and, 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 and work with them and created new models, which are more realistic about how we behave. So that's basically the prospect theory uh, sort of enters the picture. Yeah, you're totally right. So Kahneman and Bursky, who are the authors of the prospect theory paper, uh, the paper in 1979, was, re- was the most cited paper in economics, and it's okay. written by two psychologists. So that's, you know, that says something. There you uh, go. So Kahneman and Bursky, two great psychologists, uh, we're just studying how people make decisions. Uh, and Versky in particular had been trained by uh, Ward Edwards, a psychologist who has a son, who was the son of an economist and really tried to take seriously the assumptions and hypothesis from economists and test them in, in what we call lab experiments. So, you know, you economists were not doing any experiments. Economists were just having these models, assuming that people were behaving like stocks, but we didn't, you know, there was no economists were assuming that you can't test these things. You can just assume them. And psychologists took people in rooms, uh, put them in front of computers or paper and pen and paper, and asked them simple questions to see whether in simple situations people follow the assumptions of economics. And what it was, and Bursky and Kahneman, what they found is that, no, we don't. And, and so there was a kind of system at a time between the 50s and 70s uh, where you know, this kind of body of knowledge accumulated. And what happened with the paper of 79 is this paper in 79 kind of coalesced a lot of this knowledge, a lot of this accumulated knowledge about from psychology about how people behave and put simple new models, simple uh, formal uh, uh, assumptions about which kind of explain these deviations from the previous model. And this stuff was, I think, was a key which made that this caught up because economists, you know, they were not economists play with models. So we, we need kind of these little toys. And kind of Kahneman and Versky came up with all this criticism, which was grounded on evidence. And it was hard to dismiss. But at the same time, they offered to economists this kind of alternative tools, these alternative models, which economists could take off the shelf and plug in the models. So this 79 paper you, you, you mentioned, the um, prospect theory, has this kind of set of ideas, and we can talk about what they are, but that, that's what happened. And that's what it became so influential. Right. So those, that's basically when heuristics was introduced as sort of a concept. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So actually heuristics uh, preceded prospect theories. You have a paper in science in 74 uh, by Kahneman and Versky about heuristics and biases and they list four heuristics and heuristics is comes from a Greek term. um, And it means rule, basically it's rules of thumb. Okay. So, uh, Instead of economists thinking that we're kind of supercomputer and, and we, we solve problems and we find the optimal solution, 
Um, Kahneman and Versky says, well, actually, you know, the world is complex. And so we use very simple rules to kind of navigate the world. A consequence of that is that these rules are most often going to make good decisions. And that's why we use them. But sometimes they are going to lead us astray, right? Uh, I think a good um, uh, analogies are kind of visual illusions. So our visual system is using also these kind of rules to make, uh, to interpret the visual information, which is very rich, but it uses some kind of tricks to kind of uh, use less information. And, and, and some of the consequence of these tricks is that in some unusual situations, we, we, we'll have visual illusions just because, you know, the, the patterns that, of data we get is wrongly interpreted by these rules. So that was 74. Uh, and and the, the prospect theory added a kind of a layer with, with more, um, as I said, model, which was going further. And, and I'm not sure the economists could have used the notion of heuristics. And actually, you don't find economists so engaging so much with the notion of heuristics because they can't put that in mathematical models. You know, what is okay. the rule of thumb? It's very hard. But prospect theory really took to come because, uh, because they could plug that in the models. Mm-hmm. So the, so they're sort of mental shortcuts. I think one example in your book is the idea that you might come upon a snake and your instinct is to jump back, even though maybe there just aren't very many poisonous snakes in your area. And there's actually no reason to be fearful. Right. But you sort of jump to conclusions because, um, you know, protects you. Right. Yeah. So there's clearly, uh, in, in, in the world, we have a trade-off between quick decisions and, and good decisions. Right. Uh, so, so we could spend a lot of time thinking about making the right decisions, but that's costly. And in part, you're in a situation where like you, you meet a snake, uh, you, you may not want to have humans kind of spending too much time thinking, what is it? Why is it moving that way, et cetera. And so, um, I mean, you, and one way to put it is that our ancestors who spent a lot of time thinking about what's the snakes, maybe they are not there anymore. Right. So we're not the, no, they're not our ancestors. We, we, we are the hair of those who, maybe for irrational reasons, jumped out when they saw a snake form and they survived because they make good decisions. So it's the same way when you have kids, right? You uh, Sometimes you tell them, don't do that. You know, Don't put your fingers in the electrical plug. You don't tell them you know, what's an electrical plug and what's not an electrical plug. You don't explain to them what electricity is. So you, you, sometimes you just want them to follow the rules and, and, and to make good decisions. And so that's, 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 that's explanations here for why we have gotcha. these rules and why they're useful. So how do we get from heuristics into prospect theory into things like reference points and loss aversion, um, diminishing sensitivity? How do you get into some of those concepts and, and can you unpack those a little bit? Yeah, totally. So uh, reference points, loss aversion uh, and, 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 and uh, diminishing sensitivities are the kind of key assumptions of prospect theory. So prospect theory is, is a theory about how we make decisions under risk. And, and once again, maybe if we want to understand it, we can start again with what was economics saying before. And so economics uh, had a, what, we, what economists fucked was a beautiful theory. There was, a, you know, you could think that when you're a scientist, you can really be um, thrilled by a theory which aesthetically, you know, you start from very simple principles and you explain a lot of things. Think about Newton, you know, the, the apple fall on his head and he realized allegedly, that uh, it's the same mechanism which makes the apple fall and which makes the moon uh, uh, turn around the earth, right? So that's kind of beautiful. You have one simple principle and explain plenty of things. Same thing for economists. We have this kind of beautiful theory where if you follow a very small number of principles, which when you look at them, they look reasonable, uh, then, and these principles were 
proposed by uh, von Neumann and, and uh, Morgenstern. So von Neumann, by the way, is one of the designers of the atomic bomb. You know, he's, he doesn't feature uh, very much in the Oppenheimer movie, but he's one of the person, kind of one of the changes of the 20th century. He did so many things. And one of the things he did is to uh, uh, to propose the theory about how we make decisions under risk. So if you feel, if you follow a few reasonable assumptions, then you can think that whenever you face a risky decisions, think about either you, you play at the casino or maybe you, you choose, you know, do you want to take this job offer or not? Uh, do you want to move to another country, etc.? You make these risky decisions, you are going to give values to the different options you face, like subjective values. And then you are going to weight these values with the probability that you will get them. So maybe you think, okay, should I take this job offer? So you will consider if I take this job offer, there is a 30% chance that it works very well and I will be happy that much. Uh, there is 50% chance that it's going to be neutral relative to my current situations. And there is 20% chance that, you know, it goes wrong. So I'll be that unhappy. So you weight these things with these probabilities. And you are going to take the options where this kind of weighted, what we call expected utility, which is a weighted anticipated satisfaction. You choose the options with which has the highest expected utility. Sounds great. You know, like economists sounds, really sounds happy. Great. Right. Yeah. Sounds, yeah. Like we're very rational. We just, you know, sure. have these values and we make <laughs> the right decisions. And what Kahneman Versky showed is, is that you have all this literature showing that we deviate in many ways from that. So the prospect theory kind of delineates a few principles that you can alter, change expected utility. The first thing is that when you think about the subjective satisfactions you will get from options, economists were assuming that, uh, let's say you consider income. Let's say you consider the potential income you would get if you choose, choose, choose a new job offer. Um, Economists were thinking, well, income is income. It's just in dollars. So you will just com compute, you know, your utility of your current income and the utility of a future income. And, and there is diminishing sensitivity. So, you know, like you're happy with your first $50,000 and you're uh, uh, more happy if you get 50000 more. Uh, you're also more happy if you get 50000 more. But, you know, uh, the kind of incremental satisfaction diminishes. Like if, you have if your income is $500,000, and I give you another $50,000, you know, it doesn't clearly doesn't feel as good as your first $50,000. <laughs> so, so they had this vision and Kahneman and Vesky says, wait a minute, you know, uh, people do not take absolute income, total income as to think whether they're happy. You know, you don't wake up every morning uh, thinking, oh, you know, that's what I get in my bank account. And people like Elon Musk don't wake up every morning thinking, yeah, you know, I'm a billionaire. I'm super happy. I mean, they may be happy, but uh, they may be also very frustrated, you know, and one insight that Kahneman Versky says is that we use a kind of reference point, uh, a, a kind of benchmark level. And when we deviate up or down, that would make us happy or unhappy. And, so, and typically this benchmark will be the status quo. That is what you have. So if you're Elon Musk and, you know, you're the richest man in the world, but you wake up and you suddenly you realize that the stock market has not worked in your favor and Warren Buffett has overtaken you, then you may be very frustrated. Even though, you know, like it, you and me and most listeners would love to be the second richest man in the world. Right. right. Elon Musk will, will have these feelings based on a benchmark, which we call reference point. Yeah. In your book, you talk about um, sort of the social media example. If Elon Musk makes another billion dollars, I'm not feeling too bad or too good about myself. It's almost non-effective, right? It doesn't matter to me. Totally. Super interesting. So uh, a question which is... Um, 
which arise from the theories, where is this, you know, what is this reference point? Um, how do we create, how do we decide or how is it going to uh, determine in your head? Um, so here we go. We have to go beyond Kalman University because Kalman University proposed this idea, but in a way they didn't solve or propose a clear way of resolving how it's determined. So it's, it's later work, including works I'm working on now, um, where we, we kind of get a better idea about what's going on. And, and, and a very good way of explaining that is, is, is taking a kind of, uh, considering the satisfaction system as a way for you to, um, to make good decisions. And so this reference point is really for, for you to be sensitive about your decisions in the range of outcomes that you're considering. That is, uh, if you're uh, Elon Musk and you want to make the right decisions, you need to care about, you know, getting 1 billion more now and losing 1 billion because that was going to make you good at making decisions. If it was you and me, if we have the reference point of, of um, uh, Elon Musk, then everything would look bad because, you know, we're not gaining, <laughs> we have zero chance of getting, you know, <laughs> right. a billion today. Yeah, right. So we'll just be very unhappy. But then when your boss tells you, do you want to work on this project and you may be promoted, you would say, well, I don't care. You know, I, I want a billion dollars. So projects or no projects, are, are, it doesn't matter for me. No, so, so for you to make good decisions, you need to, to care about the range of outcomes that you face. You know, if, you, if you're selling... Uh, if you have a steel, a small shop and you're selling like uh, $10 items and you have a small income, you need to care about not making mistakes in that range. And if you're Elon Musk, you need to care about a, a totally different range. So now that means that, uh, you know, our subjective satisfaction system should kind of calibrate, uh, zoom in on the right uh, reference. And one way of doing so is to, to, to see that all the people like you, what they are doing, it gives you an information about what you, sh you are able to do. And so in, in the book, I give this example, like, you know, you're on Facebook and, and you find out that somebody who was in your high school has been uh, very successful. And we know that, I mean, you know, ideally, maybe we, we, we may want to think that it would be great if we could uh, reveal in the uh, success of our uh, friends. But we know that actually often there's this kind of negative effect that you, in comparison, you think, oh, my God, you know, this person was very successful and I'm not as successful as this person. And that's because once you see this person successful, it kind of shifts, shifts up your reference point because you're learning suddenly that, wait a minute, you know, this person was like me and I could have done that. And I, I did see. not. So you're learning this thing and you pay the price for learning this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, and what I think is interesting is that same idea of reference point. Uh, in your book, you talk about the, the taxi drivers um, and, and, you've, and you've almost got like sort of a mix. You've got reference point, you've got loss aversion, maybe, maybe even even uh, diminishing sensitivity, all kind of wrapping up into this one example of why um, I'll let you tell the story. But why sometimes we don't do what would make the most sense uh, financially or economically. Right. So the taxi uh, uh, example that you mentioned has been a, a very uh a popular, uh, influential paper in, in economics. And there have been several papers after the, the initial one. Um, it comes from a study of taxi drivers in New York City uh, and to see the patterns of how long they, they decide to, to work on a given day. So now let's start with maybe the view from what, what an economist would say. An economist would say, well, you know, you have many days in a year and you should work to maximize your income. So you think, you know, once again, you think about Mr. Spock, how Mr. Spock would drive his taxi. 
Well, some days are very busy. Maybe there's plenty of conventions in the city. So people want to go to the airport and from the airport, et cetera. So you have lots of business. And some days are very dead. Well, you know, there's not much activity. Maybe it's holidays, et cetera. So uh, in that case, what you should do is that on the days when it's very busy, you should have long hours because per hour, you know, you'll be very active. You'll easily find customers, et cetera. And on the days where it's very uh, calm, well, you should have more holidays. You know, when you decide how to trade off leisure and work, maybe you should do 10 hours on the busy day and maybe you should do five hours on the uh, quiet days and, you know, uh, it's time to be with your family. So now let's look at what taxi drivers do. What you find out is that on the busy days, they stop early. And on the quiet days, they stop late. You know, they, they work more. So they kind of go against the prediction from the spotlight behavior. Now, I think if you and me and your listeners think about it, it's very intuitive. Like most likely what happens is that they have a target, which is, I don't know, maybe I want, I need to make, uh, you know, $300, $500 a day. And so I'm going to drive as long as I reach this target. And what I reach, once I reach my target, I stop. Uh, and this target can act as a reference point. So uh, the way to explain it, you know, the way to explain how um, it can impact our behavior is to think that is to use the model from uh, Kalinowski and say, okay, if the taxi drivers have a reference point, and they have a, you mentioned loss aversion, which is part of the prospect theory, which is that you you really dislike falling back beyond your reference point. So you like being above. So you know you like beating your expectations, but. But in comparison, you really dislike falling back uh, below your expectations. So if you have these expectations that you should make $300, $500 a day in your taxi, you know, you're going to be uh, uh, working very hard to reach this target. And then when, once you reach this target, you don't feel that you need to do much more uh, to, to go beyond. And so you stop. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, picked by random to participate in a year-long survey uh, with um, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation. And every month I'd get a, a survey would be sent to me and I would answer questions about um, where I had been fishing recently, what I had caught. Um, there's a wide variety of questions, but there was one, uh, one question. It was the last question of every survey that was just, uh, just sort of a punch in the gut. And the question would ask, it would say, uh, the last time you went fishing, if you could have been guaranteed to catch the fish you were targeting that day, how much longer would you have stayed at that location? And I, I just, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's, you think to yourself, gosh, I mean, that day, what I really wanted to catch, I might've stayed hours, maybe uh, many right. hours longer. Um, but I, I kept coming to that, uh, to that thought when I was reading that section of your book, you know, so as we go from there, we kind of get deeper into your book. Um, and you start to talk about some of the pro-social behavior. You're talking about kindness, emotions, uh, social identity. You start getting into some of these other things that are, again, sort of counterintuitive and, and get into this stuff that's even perhaps even harder to understand, right? Why are we, uh, for example, kind to people or, or why that might affect um, some of these studies, like you mentioned, um, you know, for example, the prisoner's dilemma or, yeah. um, you know, just sort of this idea of this paradox of commitment, right? That, that we will do things when we love somebody that is just yeah. um, sort of unexplainable. Yeah. So the first part of the book is about all these decision-making when you're, you could say alone, like, you, you know, when you decide, uh, like the taxi driver decides when I stop uh, as a taxi driver is, is not uh, in relation with the people. And so in these kind of situations, the, the, what I discuss in the book is how, when you take the perspective that we have to solve complex problems, uh, 
lots of these heuristics and lots of these uh, behavior, which looks paradoxical or surprising, actually there are good solutions to the problem we face. Like, you know, like the, as I said, for instance, the reference point is a way to help us make good decisions in the range of outcomes that we face. So is that the theme of the first part of the book, individual decisions? But then what you mentioned here is like, okay, even more complex things, like, you know, it's already complex when we make individual decisions to understand them. Mm-hmm. But then when people start interacting with each other, then it becomes even more complex because now, you know, when I make an individual decision as a driver, as a taxi driver, basically you could say that I'm playing, economists say, it's maybe counterintuitive. They say we play against nature, which just means that you play against the elements. You know, you don't know the world out there, whether it's, uh, you will get another customer or not. But this is kind of independent from you, right? The customers on the streets uh, don't choose to be a customer or not based on your decision. But when you interact with people in your daily life, at work, in the family, et cetera, now the way people behave towards you depend on how you behave toward them, right? So you have kind of, it's kind of this, this cycle, this loop, which makes everything more difficult. Like already one person is complex. And now you have to understand all the dynamics of people working together. And one key insight that we get when we look at that is that uh, Spock here fails totally, totally. And actually, it's a theme of the of the theory is that Spock is very bad at social interactions. He doesn't understand other people, right? right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Indeed, right. And so, lots of the things which makes us, or we, we can, we, we think they make us human, like emotions and love, etc. Often they are interpreted as being errors or irrational things, but actually they are really, really good, and they are here for a reason. So you mentioned a few things. I mean, you mentioned kindness, for instance. Uh, you know, the economists before were assuming that people were self-centered and don't care about others. Well, that's a terrible way of behaving in society, you know. And I'm not saying that as a kind of moral thing. I mean, you can have a moral you know, view about, about it. But I'm just saying even pragmatically, you know, if you want to successfully navigate social interactions, if you don't care about other people, you're going to fail. Uh, you're not going to be promoted. You're not going to, you know, people won't want to work with you. Right. And one way of thinking about it, and you mentioned the prisoner's dilemma, it's this toy game used in game theory, is that uh, the prisoner's dilemma is one of the situations where if you were to play one situation, uh, one one shot, you don't want to cooperate. And maybe, do, do you want me, I can go if you want, I can describe the game. Like, uh, do you want me to describe the game more sure. precisely? Yeah, I, I, yeah, for, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. So uh, the example I like and I describe in the book is is a version where, which is a suitcase exchange between two criminals. So think about the Godfather. One is selling diamonds and one wants has has cash to buy diamonds. Now, because it's an illegal transaction, they can't sign a contract and and have a, a lawyer uh, attending the uh, the transactions. Sure. So they decide to do a suitcase exchange in, in a neutral place. So one brings a suitcase allegedly full of diamond. The other one, uh, the other suitcase allegedly full of cash. But they can't check because, you know, if they can't check in public what's inside the suitcase. So here's a problem. Every criminal, each criminal could decide to, you know, come with a, a, a suitcase filled with rocks, for instance, and, and to give a, a suitcase with rubbish and to get the, the other suitcase full of either diamond or cash. Now, if you play this game once, let's say, you know, you and me were criminals and we don't know each other and, you know, tomorrow I'm going to Argentina and, you know, you're never going to see me again. (laughs) So now uh, what's going to happen? I mean, you know, we're we're criminals. We don't care for each other. So why would I, if I think that you bring a suitcase full of diamonds, why would I bring a suitcase full of cash? I mean, you won't check it anyway. So, you know, I have an interest to just bring rubbish 
and to take your diamonds, but you, you have the same interest. So we are in these kind of peculiar situations where we would like to exchange because I prefer your diamonds and you prefer my cash. But because we have these one-shot situations, we actually can't manage to cooperate. Okay. Right. And the key insights from game theory is that if ever we repeat this situation again and again, so now instead of doing a one-shot, we become partner in crime. Like every week we do this exchange. It's changed everything. Because if ever one day you bring your diamond and I bring you stones, well, you're not going to come back next week, you know, with new diamonds. So I'm going to lose this kind of uh, business opportunity, this cooperation opportunity in the future. And that, this loss of future opportunities is going to police my behavior in the present. And right. then now what you get from that, you know, building on this very simple insight, you can explain that uh, the fact that we have a psychology designed to care about other people, to care about what the right way to split the gains and benefits, uh, the gains and costs of cooperation it is the right way of navigating all these complex interactions when we repeatedly work with other people, we can benefit over time of working with other people as long as we can manage to agree and not to break, you know, uh, these, these relationships. Yeah. I, I mean, I find that stuff pretty interesting, right? So you've got, you know, this idea they repeated a hundred times. Um, and, and I guess what you're getting at here is you're talking a little bit about sort of the evolution of the behavior, right? Because over time, I imagine, you know, you don't just have those one-off opportunities. Ultimately we are bred or shall we, naturally selected, right. To be more cooperative, um, which gets into things like overconfidence. I thought was an interesting part of the book because you know, for me, it was so easy to imagine why you would think something, uh, you know, an early human, right. That's overly confident. Maybe they go against uh, too big of an animal or they, they climb too high of a cliff. You would think in this sense that, uh, you know, things like that would be terrible and would, you know, how can they be selected naturally, right. Through evolution. If, if on, if on the one hand, they seem so bad. And I think you, you made the point that overconfidence, while it might be bad for everyone as a group, uh, it could be really good for individuals within a smaller group and, and, and that sort of thing. So I think here's where you start to get into this evolution um, of, of how we actually evolved. Yeah. So overconfidence is also the same. I mean, one way of understanding is the difference between, you know, when you behave against uh, individual, uh, against nature, like you, you decide to catch an animal, the animal, um, you know, mostly doesn't kind of interact strategically against you. Right. Um, or when you interact with other people, and uh, overconfidence is something that we, that is like, uh, you know, there are some results in psychology, you know, who, who have been found to be a bit flimsy recently, but overconfidence is not one of them. So we tend to think that we're stronger than we are. We tend to think that we're, you know, better driver, uh, more attractive, uh, nicer, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I love, I love where uh, you point out that when you ask, for example, uh, 10 people that contributed to a project, what percentage they contributed. That's right. And, and the number right. is invariably much larger than 100%. That's right. And one application of that is couples. You know, you ask people, uh, couples, uh, what's the share of, of household uh, chores you do? <laughs> it's right. always above 100%. So <laughs> yeah. I'm sure your listeners will, will be aware that it's a source of some tension sometimes uh, in their life. So now... One kind of popular explanation in psychology about that is that we just, you know, we just like it. So uh, I wake up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror and I just like the idea of thinking of myself as, you know, uh, more beautiful than I am. Maybe the mirror maybe is too truthful, actually. You know, what we do is we take a ton of pictures 
and we put on our social media the best looking one and that's the one we look at most of the day and I think that's me. <laughs> right. And then when, when your friend take a picture of you, you say, well, you're a terrible photographer. Doesn't look anything like me. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, one explanation is that we just enjoy that. But as you said, if we were just enjoying thinking that we're better than we are, then we would do stupid things like, you know, uh, I would take risk and I would, I would pay the price and, and that's, that would not be selected. So a better explanation about uh, why we're overconfident is that when we interact with people, there's always an element of deception, uh, you know, at the margin, you know, like uh, you, 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 you want to embellish the truth. I mean, I understand what we want. It's not just totally conscious all the time, but you benefit at least to embellish the truth for people to think that you're better than you are, that, you know, they should be your friends, they should be your allies, uh, maybe some, they should be your mate, et cetera. And then, uh, when you when you try to convince people, if you if you have in your head the truth and the the things that you want them to believe in is different, it may be hard sometimes. Like you you have to think longer. You are, you have to kind of uh, you know manage your contradictions. So uh, one insight here is that actually it may just be easier for you to believe your own stuff to what you say <laughs> believe your own lies, okay. right? And then it may just help you being more convincing. And so that's an axis of research, an axis of research, which is very interesting, which explains overconfidence by the, the gains that you have. Like by being overconfident, you can manage to convince some people around you that actually you're better than you are. Yeah, that was sort of where it all kind of came together for me in the book, right? Because there was a section where you're starting to talk about how, you know, if you think about it, maybe we're not actually evolved to be good at geometry or astronomy or, 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 or even mathematics uh, as the early, you know, um, economic theories we're looking at, right? In reality, maybe we are evolved to just navigate complex social interactions. And, and in a nutshell, I think what you're saying is it may be uh, overconfidence selected because we're evolved to convince people to follow us, right? To, to, to do what we want. Yeah, I think it's a... Uh... To me, you know, as a social scientist, I think it's a fascinating insight. A bit maybe sad, but uh, we tend to think that we have a reason. You know, the re- reason we are we, we try to uh, we can arguments, we can we're interested to know the truth, etc. But when you think about it, I mean, two authors in particular, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, put this argument forward: uh, is that uh, most likely evolution yeah, there was no evolutionary pressure towards being right. You know, like being good at mathematics. And making correct mathematics. Uh, it's unlikely that ancestors, you know, life and death situations kind of, I mean, maybe a few of them, maybe if you're an engineer to the king to design the cannon, sure. it helped being a good engineer. But most most of the times it doesn't matter. So, and in particular, when you think about things like, let's say, understanding uh, astronomy, you know, whether the sun turns around the earth or the reverse, or having, let's say, having the right model of uh, astronomical model, I mean, clearly that doesn't have any impact on the fitness of, 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 of our ancestors. And so the insight here is that reason is important, but not for these, for these, um, reasons. It's important to help us convince people. So if I want you to be my friend, I need to be in my uh, coalition to meet other people. I need to make arguments because I need to argument about the world. Maybe I need to tell you, you know, I am good. So, but you're not, you're going to say, okay, Lionel says, good, but what are, what are your elements? So I'm going to put arguments, which needs to have some consistency because if I talk gibberish, you're not going to be convinced. But if I tell you, well, I'm good because, you know, you have seen me do this stuff yesterday and this stuff is hard. And so I was successful at doing this. And so you can, that's a proof that 
you know, I'm somebody good and you should be my, in my coalition. So right. now, you know, you need to kind of uh, assess to be, to be good at assessing the, the credibility of that. It's okay. Was it really a hard task? You know, etc. So all our cognitive processes where we need to be, um, we, we call that, uh, they call that epistemic vigilance, where you kind of assess the credibility of statements. They need to have a consistency, which is a consistency of, you know, maybe geometry, maybe you need some geometry because if I make an argument, which is geometrically inconsistent, you need to be aware that, you know, I tell you, oh, my field is that big. I say, wait a minute, the size, you know, the shape of your side, your field is diff- means that your field is not that big. So being good at mathematics, being good at logic is a kind of byproduct of being good at making sense of claims, uh, making claims which are convincing and finding out when claims are not convincing. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, where does it go from here? You know, what, where, does, where does behavioral economics go from here? And, and, and in that, what is it that you're working on now? Uh, you know, I know this is a pretty new book, but you must be doing other stuff. I think you, you're involved in a number of things there. So kind of unpack sort of where it goes, where you're going. Yeah. So I, I said initially at the start of the interview that uh, you are... Uh, Behavioral economics has get, been very popular. So, you know, I, when I started as a, my PhD, that was not super popular. We were like, often, at least within the academic discipline, we were a bit, uh, you know, the rebel, people like disagreeing. <laughs> uh, you know, say, oh, you're a behavioral economist. <laughs> that was a bit okay. sometimes uh-huh. you know, how we were welcome in, in things. But then, you know, uh, Kahneman got a Nobel Prize in 2002. Uh, Tversky would have got it allegedly, or um, we think, but he died in 96. And then really that opened the door to be able to connect being super famous. Uh, Thaler and Sunstein write the book Nudge, very influential book, um, mm-hmm. I think from memory, I think 2008. And that was also very influential to bring behavioral economics insights to public policy, the industry, et cetera. And then like everything which become very popular, you know, uh, Lots of claims are being made. When I when I when I work in behavioral economics, people were calling me saying, "Oh, I've heard behavioral economics can solve this problem." Like, and I was like, "No, <laughs> it cannot." But you know, people thought it was this kind of magic stuff. And, and 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 as a consequence, now is that there's a bit of a pushback about some of the biggest claims made by some about behavioral economics. Um, but my so 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 my work is and with my colleagues, we're kind of part of thinking about what's next. And what next is that after having found that people are not Mr. Spock, uh, what's interesting is to not just to list all the bad ways, all the mistakes we make, is to really understand the, the, the foundations that why we behave the way we do. And, 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 and often the way we, we behave are very good solutions to a problem face. And we see that the theme of the book. And so the specific, if I, if I give you the specific stuff I'm working a lot now is uh, precisely giving um, an explanation of uh, prospect theory, uh, why we have all this feature of prospect theory. And instead of uh, our explanation is that it's not a set of defects. So the reference point, the loss aversion is not a set of defects. It's actually very good at making you, uh, at helping you make good decisions. Mm-hmm. So if you have like five minutes, I can give you a, 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 a brief description. Mm-hmm. Please. So I think the interesting thing here is that this, the, the explanation we have cast a lot, a very interesting light about, you know, what are the drivers of happiness? Uh, what makes you happy and, and what drives you to do things? And so I said in prospect theory, you have the kind of reference point and you have a loss aversion, et cetera. Uh, 
our perspective is that this thing is just designed to help you, uh, to nudge you, to push you to make the right decision. And and one key thing that we move beyond the kind of adversity things is that uh, to make good decisions, you need to identify your potential. You know, what is the best thing you can do? Okay. Uh, and so once you identify your potential, that's going to set your reference point and you want to achieve it. But there's a kind of contradiction here that if, if you can decide what your potential, why don't you set your reference point very low? That if, if you think, you know what, I'm, I'm very happy with my life. Uh, sure. I've got some friends and we play cards every day. You know, what do I need a promotion? I don't need a better car. I don't need a better, bigger house, etc. Well, that would not uh, push you to, to work harder. And, and, you know, unfortunately, the insight here that the, the happiness, we're not designed to be happy. Happiness is the kind of reward and penalties uh, uh, which exists to, to not just to, to, to do the, to do as much as we can. So that's the key idea. And so, uh, that explains then plenty of features of, uh, of happiness, how it works. One thing is that you need to have high aspirations. Uh, you need, once you identify that you can do something, you need to want to do it. So how does our system of satisfaction, uh, induce us to think like that? Well, Whenever you are, you get positive news about what you can do, you feel good about it. You have what we call in economics anticipatory utility. Mm-hmm. So if I was to tell you, oh Zachary, I think there is this, uh, you know, in our organization, uh, I think uh, the top manager wants to promote you. So the promotion has not happened, but as I say that to you, you feel wow, that's great. You know, uh, you made my day. Nothing has happened. Your life has not changed. But but the information you like the information, and what it means is that. Uh, because you decide to believe in it, then you want, you move your reference point. Okay. Uh-huh. And so you're rewarded for being ambitious. And, and that explains why we, we set our goals to challenging things. People decide to run marathon. They decide to do difficult things when they will have to work for it. And you, you may wonder why, why do you go to so much pain? Because there's a pleasure in, you know, realizing what you can achieve. And then you, once you realize that, you set your reference point there and then you want to do it. So that's a key insight. And then the, the other insights about the reference point is that it will take all the information available uh, to identify what you can do. So, you know, we, we talked already before about peers. Uh, you know, you will take information about your peers, what they are achieving. You'll take information about what you have done in the past. Uh, and all that will feed into this reference point. And that's why you're frustrated when you see people like you doing better, but also that's why you're not frustrated when you see Elon Musk getting another billion because Elon Musk is outside of the group of people relevant for you. So it doesn't matter what Elon Musk is doing. So all this kind of rich way or happiness is working makes a lot of sense when you understand it as a system to uh, drive you to, to find what you can do, the best you can do and achieve it. Mm-hmm. So does that, um, I forget what it's called, sort of that diminishing utility at that and, and, and sort of the idea that you um, a loss hurts more than a gain feels good. Is that part of also what drives you to, to continue chasing that higher reference point? Because failing to meet it, it, it hurts more than actually exceeding makes you feel good. I don't know how to say that correctly. Excellent question. And that's actually the crux of what we're doing now is that uh, we're working on now is, is loss aversion. We show that loss aversion is actually a requirement in this uh, system. So the logic goes like that. Uh, I just say that this reward system that we have in our head needs to prevent us to be pessimistic or to be like, uh, you know, to be thinking, oh, uh, to be modest. 
Let's say, oh, I'm happy with what I have. That, that, that would not be a system which induces us to be successful. Um, but sometimes, once you, you feel good for having high aspirations, there is a risk of being delusional. Why don't I feel today that I could become Elon Musk tomorrow? And I'm super happy about that. I don't need to work. Uh, maybe tomorrow I'll find out I'm not. But, but you know, the, the, the happiness I get now of being delusional may trump the cost of a future disappointment. So our subjective world system has to solve these two problems, preventing us to be pessimistic and preventing us to be optimistic. And what we can show uh, formally, in, uh, you know, when you when you try to, to find the optimal subjective satisfaction uh, system is that you can't have an, a, what you call an you know, S-shaped utility function, which is like uh, your satisfaction cannot be symmetric above your expectations and below, uh, which is a result if you, uh, if you just think that, uh, you know, you have a reference point and you're rewarded for being above expectations and, and penal, penalized for being below expectations. So uh, often the, in this literature, the, the A-shape were symmetric. So you're, you're kind of, you're happy above and it decreases your additional happiness decreases and, and then you're unhappy falling below, but also your disappointment, uh, pro additional disappointment decreases as you fall further and further. And we, we show that you can't have such a, a feature of your subjective satisfaction. It needs to be asymmetric because the asymmetry is required for you to be more penalized for failing to reach expectations. Uh, and that leads you to choose the right expectations and to really try to get it afterwards. So loss aversion is not uh, a defect in that sense. It's kind of a feature of the system. It's a feature of an optimal system inducing you to make good decisions. Right, right. Uh, I mean, uh, Lionel, this has been fascinating, uh, truly uh, an enlightening conversation. Um, as we approach time here, I, I wanted to give you a moment to uh, tell people who, if they're interested in following along with what you're doing, uh, I know you've written a book, but uh, I, I found you on Substack. Maybe tell us where we can find you uh, and, and tell us uh, how to get your book. Well, cool. So uh, the book, obviously, uh, recently published, is cover all that. Um, I cover a lot of ground behavioral economics. It took me a few years to write this book. I think anybody interested in these topics will find um, uh, a lot of interesting things in it. And, it. and the book is written at a fairly non-technical level with a lot of examples, which uh, uh, I think people can relate uh, in their daily lives. And, and then otherwise, I, I, I've been on Twitter for quite a while, so I tend to tweet there. Uh, 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 and, and, and I also started a Substack where I really built on the inside of the book. Uh, and it, the subsides like follow the perspective of the book about looking for the good reasons behind our behavior. Some part are going to be uh, uh, similar to the book, but often I'm going to look at different uh, type of things in the um, in the real world that we face, uh, with new topics. So if people are interested, they're, you know, they're most welcome also to check the Substack, to subscribe, etc. Absolutely. And we'll put uh, links to all of that in the show notes. Um, if you have enjoyed this discussion and you want to hear more, uh, please follow along Lost in Transaction on your podcast app. Uh, be sure to like our show, re leave a review. Uh, you can also find us on Substack at lostecon.com and Twitter at lostecon. Uh, Lionel, thank you for joining me today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Zachary.